Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm the minister here at ACC. And I'm really super excited because we get to jump into a new book of the Bible, the book of Philippians. And we're going to read not the book of Philippians today. <laughs> um, as, as we go through Philippians, I want us to kind of explore the themes that Paul is teaching the church in Philippi. I want us to explore... Um, these major ideas of joy and unity that Paul is teaching at the church in Philippi. But I thought for today, uh, we would do a little intro message in which we go back to the book of Acts and we look at what was going on in the church when the church in Philippi was founded. So we're going to, this is going to be like, a, this is like a, in Star Wars, what was the, the Phantom Menace? This is going to be a prequel to the actual series on Philippians. And so as we go through this, I want us to be thinking about putting ourselves in the mind of first century Christians and asking the questions that they were asking and wrestling with the issues that they were wrestling with. Because when you think about the book of Acts and the early church, the major question that the early church was asking was that what does following God look like now that the God of Israel has opened the doors to allow all nations to become his covenant people? Okay? Think about, think about Israel. Israel is a very, was a very exclusive religion. It was an ethnically based religion. You were born into the nation of Israel. So that's kind of difficult for us to wrap our minds around. Um, you didn't typically convert to Judaism. Now, there, there were people who worshipped the God of Israel. They were called God-fearing Gentiles. But they weren't God's chosen people. That's not how they thought of them. You were still either a Jew or a Gentile. And, and for the early Jews, if you were not born into that covenant, you, you weren't God's chosen people. When we enter the New Testament, what Jesus did on the cross and what happens in the book of Acts with, with the Holy Spirit coming down on the Jews and the Gentiles alike, what that did is that, that burst the door wide open. Now through Christ, all nations have the ability to enter into that same covenant and become God's chosen people. And so the big question that the church was wrestling with was, well, what does that look like? This is a paradigm shift. How are we going to handle this? And so as we're, as we're getting to this point, we're going to look at Acts chapter 15, and I want to give you a little bit of, of prequel, prequel context to Acts 15. Acts 15. Okay? So the things that have happened right before Acts 15, there's two things you need to know. Um, number one, Paul has gone on his first missionary journey already. Okay? And the second thing you need to understand about Paul's first missionary journey is that when Paul was going out and spreading the word, he went primarily to the synagogues. And he geographically stayed really, really close to Israel. So he's going into Jewish areas. He's going into places where Judaism is already well established. There's synagogues. And he goes into the synagogues and he starts preaching to the God-fearing Gentiles 
saying, we know that you worship the God of Israel. I've got good news. He sent his son. He died on the cross. And now you can become full covenant members. You can have full citizenship into the covenant rather than being a second class follower of God. So that's where we open up. And if you have your Bibles with you, I'd love if you would turn with me to Acts chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 1. Verses 1 through 5. It says, Now some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. When Paul and Barnabas had a major argument and debate with them, the church appointed Paul and Barnabas and some others from among them to go up to meet with the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this point of disagreement. So they were sent on their way by the church, and as they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, they were relating at length the, conversation, the conversion of the Gentiles and bringing great joy to all the brothers. When they arrived in Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all the things God had done with them. But some from the religious party of the Pharisees who had believed, who had believed stood up and said, It is necessary to circumcise the Gentiles in order for them to observe the law of Moses. So this is the question they're wrestling with. Now that God has opened the door to enter into this covenant, what do these Gentiles need to do in order to be covenant partners with God? You've got to have some sort of thing that determines who's in and who's out. You can't just have a, a free-for-all. There has to be some sort of entry point or requirement. That's, that's logic. Right? Think about you know, our, our, our church here. We don't have a very high entry point to what, when, if you want to become a member of Alliance Christian Church. I mean, you have to show up at least. We have to know your name. Like, could you, could you imagine if, if we just said, like, anybody who just claims they're a part of Alliance Christian Church is a part of Alliance Christian Church? And it's like, yeah, well, I've never even seen you before. Right? So it's not, we're not trying to put barriers up, but you've got to have something. That's what they were going through. And so these men from Judea said, circumcision should be the point at which you decide. And, and I think what it helps is I think we need to put ourselves back in their context. Because we, we read this today in the year 2023 and we're like, that's preposterous. Of course that's not what makes you part of God's chosen people. But, 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 but think, about, think about what their history is, what their background is. What God is doing here with the Gentiles is something completely new that's never happened before. Like there was never a point in history where the first century uh, followers of, of God could look back and say, what did we do the last time God sent his son to die on the cross and the Gentiles became covenant partners with? No. That... And so as they're wrestling with this issue, I want us to sympathize just a little bit with these men from Judea. Because when they were trying to figure out the solution to this problem, they actually asked a very logical question. They said, well, what does the Bible say? They asked the question that you and I would ask if we were having a disagreement. 
And if you're going purely off of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, which is all that existed at that point, you can make a very strong case that, that they need to be circumcised. Like, you go to Exodus chapter 12. When a resident foreigner lives with you and wants to observe the Passover of the Lord, all his males must be circumcised. And then he may approach and observe it, and he will be like one who is born in the land. But no uncircumcised person may eat of it. Verse 49, the same law will apply to the person who is native-born and the resident foreigner who lives among you. So that's, that's the claim that these Judaizers, these opponents of Paul and Barnabas, are making. So let's figure out how they solved this dilemma. We, we read on in Acts, in, in verse 6, it says, Both the apostles and the elders met together to deliberate about the matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that some time ago God chose me to preach to the Gentiles so that they would hear the message of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, has testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between them and us, cleansing their hearts by faith. So now why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. The whole group kept quiet and listened to Barnabas and Paul while they explained all the miraculous signs and wonders God has done among the Gentiles through them. So you have, this, you have this deliberation between these two parties. They're like, we have a disagreement. We need to come together and we need to pull out our Bibles and we need to talk about what's going on and figure this situation out. And so they, they talk it over. And if you, if you jump down to verse 13, oh, excuse me, we're right, we're right here in verse 13. Verse 13 says, after they stopped speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Uh, Simeon, or Simon, has explained how God first concerned himself to select from among the Gentiles a people for his name. The words of the prophets agree with this, as it is written. After this I will return, and I will rebuild the fallen tent of David. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it, so that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord. Namely, all the Gentiles I have called to, my, to be my own, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. That's a quote from Amos. Uh, it'd be Amos chapter 9. So now you have James in this argument and stands up and he pulls a passage of Scripture and says, no, 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 this is not the same old thing. This is something new. James says, we're entering into a new era that the prophets talked about. So if you look at the situation, you have... The men from Judea on one side, and they're looking at their Bible and saying, look, it says right here they need to be circumcised. And you have James and Paul and Barnabas with the exact same Bible, and they're saying, yeah, 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 but if you look at the prophets, this is something new. And they're both certain in their convictions. They're both looking at what does the Bible say, and they're in this gridlocked position. So what does the church do? Well, here in the book of Acts, they come to a decision, and they make a, 
Compromise. That feels like a dirty word to say in church, doesn't it? Compromise. I'm just telling you what they did. Okay? They both had scripture on their side. They were gridlocked. They couldn't come to a decision. So they, they both kind of gave a little and made a compromise. So if you look at verse 19, he says, Therefore, I conclude that we should not cause extra difficulty for those among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we should write them a letter telling them to abstain from all things defiled by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Verse 21 says, For Moses has had those who proclaim him in every town from ancient times because he is read aloud in the synagogues every Sabbath. So they said, okay, let's get some guidelines that are scripturally based that everyone can at least get behind. Number one, abstain from idols. This is, this is pretty clear cut. Everyone was on board with, yeah, we shouldn't be practicing idolatry. tree. We shouldn't be eating uh, meat that's been given to idols. We should stay away from that stuff. That's, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, if you're going to worship the God of Israel and claim to be part of the covenant community, you need to cut ties with idols. You can't come to church on Sunday and worship the one true God and then on Monday go offer something to Zeus. Like it doesn't work that way. So that, that one was a pretty good clear cut. Everyone could get behind that. Abstain from sexual immorality. That was another one. Both sides were like, yeah, that, that's fair. Paul, Paul would have gotten behind that. Paul got behind that. He was no stranger to talking about sexual immorality in his letters. Then he says, abstain from things that have been strangled and from blood. So they introduced not keeping the Jewish food laws completely, but not keeping like kosher light. This was a concession. This was a compromise that they made. Because of all of the food laws in the Old Testament, the practice of consuming blood would have been the most egregious to Jews in the synagogue. Like, they would have been able to put up with you if, if they knew you went home and ate some bacon. They would have been a little maybe annoyed, but whatever, they're going to eat some bacon. But if you showed up with, you know, a rare bloody steak or something, that would have caused some issues. So this was the compromise, this was the concession that they made where they came to a solution here. And I think from this Jerusalem council, as it's called, we can understand two things. Number one, when the church had disagreements, Scripture was always the first place they went. What the Bible says was always the first place they went. And obviously there was no such thing as a New Testament here. Right? We have more revelation as a church today, but we can still follow that example. We can use Scripture as our guide. And when they couldn't come to an agreement that was 100% plain and clear, what they didn't do was just delegate one person to just make the decision for everybody. I think we have a tendency today to just want to put someone in charge to say, uh, you, you, Larry, whatever, you, who it is, you just decide everything for us, and you interpret the Bible for us. But that's not what they did. They called the leaders together, and they all sat down, and they discussed it, and they pulled out their Bibles, and they argued back and forth until they came to an agreement. 
And finally, after all was said and done, they were willing to bend on the negotiable issues. They didn't bend on major issues, but they were able to bend on the points where, yeah, I, I, I can give a little to your position and you can give a little bit to mine, as long as it didn't go against what Scripture said. It's a fascinating example of how the early church worked. And, and I know when we say a word like the Jerusalem Council, like that's, that's boring. Let's be the Jerusalem Council where they deliberated on the... I understand that. But it's a really important event that happened in the early church. It's something you need to know and understand. Number one, it provides us a model for how we can resolve conflict, how we should be humble to one another, how we should use scripture as our guide. But more important than that, it opens up the rest of the story of the book of Acts in the early church. Because after this council, now that the decision was made that the Gentiles didn't have to follow all 613 laws, including circumcision, they didn't have this heavy yoke that they had to bear all of a sudden, the door to preach the gospel just burst open. Remember Paul's first missionary journey? He went and talked to the Gentiles who were in the synagogues. He was talking to people who already were on board with Judaism. And he was introducing Jesus to them. And so when with those people, if push came to shove, most of those God-fearing Gentiles, if they were told you have to get circumcised, they would have probably just done it. Because they were already on board with it. They were like, yeah, I come to synagogue. I, I dabble in following God. And I, I could do that. I could, you know, that would be an inconvenience, but I could do that. But you get outside of that little ge geographic region. You get outside of that area that's predominantly Jewish. And if you show up and you start trying to get people to follow all of the law of Moses, they're going to look at you like you got two heads. They're going to say, you want me to cut off what? No, I'll pass. So that takes us into Acts chapter 16, the end of 15 into 16. Now that the, the door to the gospel is flung wide open, they can finally go out beyond the region. They can go clear to Rome. They can go to Spain. They can go anywhere they want. We read in Acts 15.36 how Paul and Barnabas decide they're going to go big. They're going to go new places. They're going to go all over the world. Verse 36 says, After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's return and visit the brothers in every town where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Well, you mean they're just going to go to all the same places that they already went? I mean, you already preached the gospel there. This opportunity has fallen in your lap where you can go all over the world. You can go big. And they decide, well, let's just go check on the same old places. Let's just go. Let's do another round and visit all of the same brothers that we already talked to. They don't recognize the opportunity that God has given them to expand the gospel. Just read in, in through an Acts. They go to Derby and Lystra. Those are places where they had already planted churches. They had already been there. They meet Timothy. That's a good thing. Timothy ends up being instrumental in Paul's ability to grow the church. 
Because remember, Timothy was the one that Paul would send out when a church needs correction so that Paul could continue doing work elsewhere or writing letters elsewhere. So Paul, uh, Timothy was, was a force multiplier for growing the gospel. But nonetheless, they're still kind of just traveling the same old places. And so we get into verse 6. Chapter 16, verse 6 is, They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been prevented by the Holy Spirit from speaking the message in the province of Asia. Okay, here's where we get the first little hint where God is like, Get out and preach the gospel out there. He prevents them from going to the same old places they'd already been. Now, I don't, I don't know exactly what that looked like. I don't know if there was like a, a flaming sword. I, I don't know. But, but nonetheless, God says, says, go out. Stop going to the same old places. Here's, I want to show you this map here. This is, um, this is uh, Israel. So if you look over here, the little star on the bottom, that's Israel. And that red circle is, is Paul's first missionary journey in that tiny little region, okay? This is where they were trying to go the second time when it says the Holy Spirit prevented them. God says, no, go bigger. You get into verse 7, it says, they came to um, Mycenae. They attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to do this. So now, not just once, but twice, God has steered them away from what, where they want to go and what they want to do. Let me show you the same map again with, with Bithynia. My beautiful little coloring here. That star up on the top is the region of Bithynia. And if you notice the path that it's taking, it's... It's farther north than they had gone before, but it's also making the loop back to Israel. It was north, and then you had to cut back east. And by the time you were in Bithynia, the route was such that you might as well continue that loop and head right back on home. They wanted to go to a couple little regions and then wipe their hands and call it a day, and loop back on into Antioch, into Israel. And God says, no, go farther, go bigger. So it says they went into Troas. Troas is, if you're on the map here, the big landmass on the right is what's considered Asia. The big landmass on the left is what's considered Europe. Troas is the farthest out you can go while still being considered on the same continent. You go any further than Troas and you're stepping out into uncharted territory. They're on the westernmost part of Asia and it's like, it's like how far can we possibly go now? We're already at the end of the continent. We can't go any further than that. That's, this is the end of the earth, so to speak. Paul has a vision while they're in Troas. There's a man from Macedonia says, help. Help us, Paul. Come over and visit us in Macedonia. So Macedonia is boop, right there across the sea, which doesn't seem that big on that map, but that's quite a sea to cross. Macedonia is squarely in Europe, squarely in Roman territory. This is like if, if 
if Runza decided they wanted to start putting restaurants in California. Like, you're out of your comfort zone at this point. I think there's only two. There's one in Iowa and one in Colorado. Other than that, they're all in Nebraska, by the way. I checked the map the other day. Um, neither here nor there. They need to, they need to, they need to branch out. <laughs> so but they, Paul has this vision, and the Spirit is, all along, the Spirit is like pushing. No, keep going. Keep going further. And they sail across the Aegean Sea into Macedonia, and they go into Philippi. I want us to pick up in verse, chapter 16, verse 13. This is after they get into Philippi. It says, On the Sabbath day, we, this is Luke speaking here, so somewhere along the line they picked up Luke. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate to the side of the river where we thought we would, there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down and began to speak to the women who had assembled there. Okay, why are, why are they by a river? You want to know why they're going down by the river to find a place of prayer? Because there are no synagogues there. Zip, zero, zilch. That was their first place to go was let's go into the synagogue. They get into Philippi and they start looking around and they're like, oh, I think we might have walked into the wrong town. Our people are not here. So they go down to the river. Jewish law required a minimum of 10 Jewish males in order to have a proper synagogue. That was, that was their custom. If you got fewer than 10, it's not even worth starting a synagogue. So the fact that they had to go down by the river, okay, let's, Philippi's got a population of like, at this time, estimates around 20,000. It's like Scott's Bluff. It's a decent city for that time period. Nothing to sneeze at. 20,000 people, and there were not even 10 Jewish males in order to start a synagogue. That's how much they are in, I don't want to say enemy territory. They're in foreign territory. So they go on. They, they end up meeting this woman named Lydia. She's a, she's a traveling cloth salesman. She sells purple cloth. And they start the church at her house. They meet her down by the river and they say, hey, you know, let me tell you about Jesus. And they start the church at her house. They continue on. They end up getting in a little bit of hot water over another woman who's going around practicing sorcery. Uh, this woman is, is, she's practicing sorcery. She's proclaiming that they're spreading the gospel, but she's possessed or something along those lines. And so Paul gets annoyed. He casts this demon out of her. It makes everyone mad. Because they're like, what are these Jews doing over here meddling in our business? And so they throw them into jail. And God orchestrated all of it. From the Jerusalem Council, which opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, to the, the prompting of the Spirit and pushing them along their path, to the vision in Macedonia. God has been orchestrating all of this, even them going to jail. Because what happened when they were in jail is they're in there and this earthquake happens and it shatters the doors open and the prison guard's like, uh-oh, I'm in big trouble. I'm going to get fired. I might as well just run my sword through myself. And Paul's like, no, 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 stop, stop, stop. You're good. It's okay. We're all here. And he goes and he talks to the jailer and they share Christ with him and they convert this jailer and him and all of his household 
come to believe in the gospel, and that night they're baptized, and they're followers of Christ. Talk about how to start a church. This is what I want us to be thinking about is just how different the church in Philippi is going to be when we start reading about it. Because the church in Philippi wasn't started in a synagogue by a bunch of people who already understood the Torah and they knew Jewish law and they were already on board. No, it was in foreign Roman territory where there were no Jews. Nobody even knew the Torah or what it was. And it was started with a traveling cloth saleswoman and a local jailer. What a difference. We're dealing with people who are unfamiliar with the customs. They're unfamiliar with the law. They're unfamiliar with what the Bible says. And that's, that's the start of the church in Philippi. Um, as a side note, when, uh, can we give a five-minute warning to our, our kids downstairs? Sorry. All right, let's, let's land the plane on all of this. I know it's a bit of a, a historical journey, a geography journey, and, and sometimes we can get bogged down in that stuff with the maps and the customs and all of that, but I want us to, I want us to be thinking about this context when we come back and begin the book of Philippians. I want us to be thinking about the fact that the church in Philippi was founded in a time where everything was new. It was, it was founded in a time where there were tensions going on between the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians, and they had to kind of figure that out. It was the first church that was outside of that little comfort zone. Right? Even Paul didn't originally plan to go to Philippi. God had to kick, drag him kicking and screaming to get him to Philippi. He sends the vision. He says, no, go west. Keep expanding. Keep doing new things. Go farther to the ends of the earth. Go into that unknown territory. And when you have all of these different challenges at the start of a church, right, you've got a geographic challenge. Because now you're so far out that it's not easy to just send a quick letter. Like You can send them, but it takes a minute to get there now. You've got these challenges with the Jewish Christians who are still insisting on circumcision because after the Jerusalem Council, they come up. They keep fighting back and saying, no, 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 we want circumcision. You've got the challenges where you're in an area where nobody knows the Torah, nobody knows God's word. You're towing into dangerous territory to be starting a church. You're getting into territory where you're going to have divisions from the locals. And so the question we ask when we start reading Philippians is, how does somebody keep a church together and functioning and healthy in that type of a hostile environment? How are you going to maintain unity in that type of an environment? What's this have to do with any of us? God's going to call us into uncharted territory. God is going to call us, and I believe he's calling us right now, to preach the gospel to people we've never preached to and start coming in contact with people that we've never come in contact with, people that don't understand our worldview. And as a church, as brothers and sisters, we're going to have disagreements on the right way to do new things. 
how to operate in a new environment. Obviously, it's, it's not going to be as drastic as, you know, the Jerusalem Council was a pretty drastic change. We're not going to be deciding major doctrine or anything like that. But we are going to be having disagreements. We're going to be in situations where we have to rethink the way we are approaching people. We have to rethink the way we are spreading Christ in our community. And if we want to grow, if we want to reach the Roman colonies, if we want to reach Philippi, those places where they don't understand our worldview, we're going to have to go into those places and try to meet them where they are so that we can bring them into the faith. And so my, my prayer for, for this church and, and the Big C Church Universal is that we follow the example that we see here in the book of Acts. My prayer is that when we have those disagreements, that we, we go to Scripture first. We look at the Bible first and foremost. <clears throat> and when we can't find an answer directly in Scripture, I think we should be willing to come together to discuss things, to pull our Bibles out and say, well... I don't know, this says this, I, I think this might be the right answer to our question, and, and talk it out. And as long as we're staying in the Word of God, that's important. We can't just disregard the Word of God. We have to stay in the Word of God, but on those issues that Scripture's not clear about, we need to be willing to bend a little bit to each other. We need to be willing to be humble enough to say, you know, I don't know the answer, you don't know the answer, the Bible doesn't give us a clear example, so... Let's find a solution that's in line with God's word that we can both get behind. And as we're doing this, as we're tempted to go back, as we're tempted to just go back and say, well, let's not go into new areas. Let's not go talk to new people. Let's not grow the church. My prayer is that we listen to what God's telling us. Don't. Don't go back. Don't go back through Bithynia back into. Go, keep going, keep growing. Turn to what God is leading you toward and not to just what makes you comfortable. Because God is opening our doors every day to speak Christ to people that we normally wouldn't talk to. And as individuals, we should follow this guidance. As a church, we should follow this guidance. Jesus tells us in Matthew 28, Go and make disciples of all nations. That's all of them. I was telling uh, this morning, I had a gentleman who called me on the phone uh, last week and said, hey, very broken English. And he says, do you guys have a, a, a church, church in Spanish? And very, you couldn't hardly understand him. I was like, oh, we don't. We do an alliance. He wanted to know if we had, if we could... Uh, to, could preach the gospel to him in Spanish. And I was like, oh, I wish we could. Could I, could I figure out how to do a sermon in Spanish? Probably not. But I don't know. It's little things like that that we have to be thinking, like who are the unreached people in our community and what do we need to do in order to reach them? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And remember... He is with us always to the end of the age. You're just in time. We're going to pray. Go sit down. Let's pray. Okay. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to preach 
the gospel. God, we ask that you would help us to continue to use your word as our guide. God, we ask that you would help us to be humble with one another. We ask that you would help us to grow and expand and go into new territories. We ask that you would help us to be willing to compromise with each other on issues that are not against scripture. And most importantly, Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for the sacrifice. We thank you for opening the door of the gospel. And it's in his precious name that we pray. And the church said,